0: The world is changing at a rate that we've never seen before. From business to art to sports, these changes are affecting every aspect of our lives. My name is Nick Kastner, and we're setting out to talk with the people who are altering the way things are done. Along with Alec McChesney, this is The Commonwealth. Our guest today is Joe Toscano. After launching a tech career in Silicon Valley, Joe worked as a consultant at Google after working with Google for about a year, he left due to ethical concerns around data protection and privacy. He is now a leading advocate in the industry for the protection of people's data online. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Toscano. Joe, thanks for coming on the show with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me today. I'm excited to chat.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, so just to give people like a feel on, um, on where you came from, um, you're from Nebraska originally, correct? Correct. Yeah, Omaha. Omaha, yeah. and then you went to the University of Nebraska for school.
1: Yep, six years. Okay, what spent did... some extra time. <laughs> yeah, Two what, extra laps.
0: What was your um, What was your uh, field of study in?
1: So i uh, I have a strange background from an education perspective. Actually, <clears throat> I'm, I'm one of those kids who didn't go and listen to their advisor. I just kind of made my curriculum along the way but i came into school with a a 35 on my math act i was super math heavy coming into school and what they told me which if i were in the valley it would be totally different but what they told me here is you should be a math professor Hmm. and i immediately knee-jerk reaction said time to change what i'm doing with my life (laughs) if i was in the valley you know it would have been like oh you should program algorithms you should do these things uh so instead what i did is i said well i'm really good at math what do I need to get better at? And I focused on rounding myself out as a student. Picked up a psychology degree. Hmm. Spent three and a half years going through a psych degree. I was, I was doing UCARE, so I maintained my mathematics and my research base by doing a lot of heavy data science within the, the research community here, UCARE. Um, and then I decided about halfway through that, my three and a half years, I didn't want to do research the rest of my life. I didn't want to be stuck in a college basement doing, you know, these tests and whatnot. I wanted to go do applied work. So I picked up a second degree instead of going into a graduate program because, you know, it's half the cost. I said, I'll just work twice as hard. I'll go into the after hours. I'll, you know, I'll make it like a graduate program. And I picked up a second degree in journalism where I learned how to – I took the creative side of that. And I, I learned how to do code. I learned how to design. I learned how to take photography, do all those things. And then it all kind of came together into product design and yeah. – why not?
0: Yeah, and then you went on to um, continue on the creative side by going to a design school in Boulder. Correct? Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Yep. That was. A, it was a one year accelerated program where there wasn't even a set curriculum to it. It was very uh, just experimental. That's literally that's what they sold it as an experimental design studio, and you kind of had to have faith it was going to work out. But we had alumni who had gone on to prototype Apple Music. We had people who are like the third designer at Uber. We have very early people who have been out in Silicon Valley creating some of the things that we all now use every single day. And so I said, you know, it's it's obviously a really good program. Like, I'll take the risk on it. And uh, it seems to have worked out. I learned a lot out there. I learned a lot about not only product creation, design development, but also leadership, um, helping other people get up to speed at certain Points in their career or move forward there,
0: so um, yeah, it was a really good program for me. And then after um, after leaving Boulder, you um, went to go work in um, San Francisco in 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 Silicon Valley. How did you mm-hmm. end up? Um, how did you end up in California?
1: Yeah, so actually, it all, it started in in Colorado. So I within that program, while I was out there for grad school, I got a gig. I started working with some very, very talented people, people who had broken off from an agency called Crispin porter um, which is famous for the Truth Campaign. If you remember the anti-smoking stuff mm-hmm. back in the day, um, they created their own smaller agency, broke off of that, the corporate life and did theirs. So I worked there for a bit, learned from experts in the world for, at that point and sped up my career. Moved to another shop down the street from there, uh, not long after, called Quick Left, where I was one of two designers working with about 35 engineers on a team of about 50 total. I was in sales meetings, running the sales meetings as a lead designer. I was leading projects. I was 25, 26 years old at the time, leading, like doing senior level work, uh, which is heavy responsibility, but also advanced my career a lot. I moved up. I started to write for global publications because of the thought leadership I had in the space. Um, And then towards the end of that, I I reached a point where uh, I needed to move forward in my career a bit more. Uh, I was leading a lot. I was very responsible learning things, but I wanted to actually go somewhere where I had a lot more leadership to teach me things as opposed to just kind of learning on the fly, um, and in many cases, which what I was doing at the other place. And so I reached out uh, to our alumni group, actually, from that graduate program. Wow. There was a one guy that was looking to hire out in San Francisco, and he worked for a company called RGA and had set up a, a, a partnership with Google where they were working with Google. So uh, I interviewed. It took a few months. It was like nine interviews worth of back and forth. It was a lot of, a lot of back and forth there. Um, ended up getting the job and moved out there and, and worked for RGA, but I was embedded in Google, so I was there on campus in Mountain View four days a week, and then in our SF office the other day most most of the time. That's about how it worked.
0: Uh-huh. And um, from from a, after growing up in the Midwest, how did you like like the culture and environment in San Francisco?
1: Mm-hmm. It was uh, it's a, it's a bit different right It's right. a big city it's not it's actually not a very large city if you've ever been out there. It's only seven miles by seven miles. I have spent some time yeah some time out there. So it's not like distance wise or physical proximity like a large city, but it's very compact and so it's very highly dense and so it feels like a big city like New York and, mm-hmm. and the thinking out there, the industrialization of, of uh, the economy I mean they're so far ahead technically, I can't even explain it, but um, there's also a a metric to it that is, you know, the humanity of the culture. And I definitely felt a huge difference between being here in Nebraska where you're walking down the street and people are not glued to their phone. They are a bit more now, but they didn't (laughs) used to be, you know, when I was younger. Uh, They look in the eyes, they say hello. It's a different kind of culture. Uh, than it is in the Valley where it, it's a lot more business focused. There's a lot more just expediency of everything, trying to be as efficient as possible. And I think the humanity of our culture
0: gets lost in that translation. Yeah. And, so what work were you consulting with Google on? What were, what, like what kind of projects or what, what mm-hmm. were you actually doing? Uh, so types of projects. I can tell you like the
1: uh, the areas I was working on. Yeah. We did everything from like marketing of products all the way into sometimes internal product work it just depended on what we were actually working on at the time uh, so I got a very broad range uh, of projects that they let us work on I, I probably worked on or helped manage uh, between 15 and 20 projects in the year between me and the two that were working underneath of me and so I saw a lot and not only like those immediate projects, but also where those projects were going long-term, how they all connected together, and what the big picture was. So it's a very interesting perspective on it that most people don't get as a day-to-day worker in Google. Mm -hmm. Um, As a consultant, you kind of get that 10,000-foot view. Um, And, and yeah, so that's... I I can't say every project I was working on, to be honest, that they don't... That's part of the agreement, but...
0: Yeah, of course, of course.
1: um, Yeah, I I saw a lot of different things. A lot of big projects. A
0: lot of their big projects. What, um... What did you What did you learn while there? I did. I learned a lot.
1: I learned a lot. Um, I would say one of the biggest things I learned is how to how to move a lot of money. How to how to sell ideas that move a lot of money um, because it's not as easy to think to help make change in an organization like that. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, optimism on the outside that oh, there's right? Uh, There's a turnkey solution to this that we've found the problem and let's just plug it in and go. But you have to understand that these are businesses worth billions and billions of dollars Uh, in order to get something to change can sometimes take you years, if not decades. And so it's not so easy. And to sit into those conversations and to work and to consult. um, I learned a lot about sales and how to do business and how to take ideas and translate them into business language. Um, I also learned a lot about design in terms of accessibility and scalability and these things that, uh, as a startup, you hear about and you think about, but you're not actually doing at the scale of billions of people. So I'd say the two biggest things I learned were uh, very, very hard skills of, uh, of the nuances of design that a lot of people don't get the access to do, and then business, how to move money around, how to... Sell ideas into a
0: company and move things forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we said at the start of the show, you are now an, an advocate for data per, data protection um, to American consumers who are using using technology. Yeah. What did you see at Google that made you realize there was an issue? Yeah. Um, so
1: I will say that it wasn't just Google that, okay. that, has, that I have the issue with. It's with the industry at large. Um, so with working with Google, yes, I saw a lot more intimate details of Google itself. But, uh, I mean, I also had to watch Facebook and Amazon and Apple and all these other companies that are competing with Google in order to make sure Google's products that we were helping shape were up on top and, or that we were helping marketing was ahead of the curve. right? So it, it's with the industry at large. A couple of big problems that I that I focus on, um, one is what we call usability testing. It's just research, right? It's research into how your product's doing, how it's impacting the market, how your consumers feel about it, et cetera, et cetera. The way that I saw these companies asking questions of themselves was very troubling to me. Um, uh, I can't tell you the exact questions because I only can talk about what's public, but I can tell you. I'll give you a simple example. So when you make a call on Facebook Messenger and you hang up that call, most people don't really look and notice these details, but it asks you for your feedback. And on that feedback rating, it's a five-star scale, Mm -hmm. and it says, poor, fair, good, very good, or excellent. Do you see the problem there immediately? Most people don't, so it's all good don't so the problem there is that four out of five of them are fair or better okay so when they so poor ask, and fair right so there's only okay. one bad answer the other one isn't the other ones are neutral or good which means that the way they asked the question makes it so that they will get positive feedback
0: more likely Mm-hmm.
1: right so what's the problem in that? Because that's pretty – that seems like, oh, that's not very,
0: that's not yeah. very harmful. It, it, it seems like that's more of a Facebook problem. Okay. That, yeah, that, that right. they're not collecting data properly.
1: Right. But let's say Zuckerberg has to go to Congress, and Congress asks Zuckerberg, do people like the Facebook Messenger experience? He can legally and honestly say at least 80% believe it is fair or better. Hmm. You see the problem? Yeah. There? So when it comes to these uh, investigations that they're going to through now, uh, we have to start to ask, how did they get the data that they are now giving over to the government? What questions did they ask internally that led to the responses that they received? Did they use proper data science, or were they asking leading questions that enabled them to reinforce the questions they were trying to ask? It's a common it's a common yeah. research problem, but at the scale of these companies, it becomes very problematic.
0: Yeah, Um to go back to the, just the very basic underlining, underlining issue, um, yeah. what um, how much data do these companies have? <laughs>
1: that uh, That's something I can't answer. Probably no one can answer, to be honest with you. But very, very large-scale data um, along the lines of an intelligence agency, a national intelligence agency, maybe larger at times. Yes, right? yeah. Um, which... I think it's hard to wrap your mind around, uh, so, but but I do believe that we need comprehensive data rights as citizens because of the fact that essentially what they've put together is the largest-scale social science experiment in the history of the world, and it has no checks and balances besides capital and revenue gains. Uh, there's, there's nothing saying what they can and cannot do or how it should be besides informal regulation with the culture within the company, mm-hmm. right? Now, something I kind of lead to compare this from from the social sciences, right? I have a background in psychology. <clears throat> if you know anything about the Stanford Prison Experiment in, in the psychology world, that's looked back on as one of the biggest abuses of human rights in the history of psychological experiments. What was it? Uh, it's it's an experiment that was run to test authority, essentially, to see if we were to put people into different roles and to, you know, the there was a there were security guards or or prison guards right so mm-hmm. it was a, it was a mock prison setting there were prison guards who were guarding the inmates essentially now all of these participants were students at the university of stanford but they were assigned roles they were dressed appropriately they were put into their places at random at Great. random yeah it was it was a correctly ran experiment but mm-hmm. it was ethically impaired Mm -hmm. and what happened is that uh, you had a situation where the prison guards started to become abusive towards the prisoners you had these prisoners who were asking to get out of the experiment but the prison guards would not let them out at a certain point because of this lock-in setting in their mind that we kind of have as society that when you get in these roles, things happen that maybe wouldn't happen if you didn't quite feel that authority that you have, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot more details to it than that. But the picture of it is that it was a very unethical study because of the way it was run, the way that the the participants were treated and allowed or not allowed to go, et cetera. Um, I believe what big tech has created is the second coming of that. I think we will look back on what's happening in Silicon Valley right now, just like we look back on the Stanford Prison Experiment, but at the scale of the globe
0: instead of the scale of a college basement. Mm -hmm. I I worked for an e-commerce startup before uh, starting this podcast, and I would target... Facebook ads based on where people walked in uh, in at malls. If you Mm -hmm. walked in on specific stores, but it was only one specific store, but if you walked into the store next door, you wouldn't get the Facebook ad. That uh, that, that's my example that shows how how detailed and how much data these companies have on individuals. Yeah. Um, and then so, um, how do you think they these big tech companies are mismanaging them? Like, like is, is the issue the fact that they have this, mu- this much information, or are they, or are they doing something mm. improper with it?
1: I think there is concern to be had in just the scale of information they had, but I think I'm more concerned about the fact that there are no checks and balances outside of, like I said, revenue growth. There's really no checks and balances in the system. Like when you're doing research on a university campus or with a lot of established research organizations, they have an IRB. This is a board that reviews your research to make sure that it meets ethical standards. There's certain checks and balances to this more traditional forms of research. That's why it takes more time. That's why the results tend to be more, they call it like empirically prepared, right? Where there's uh, standardized methodologies, there's There's standardized ways that they do things within the research so that it can be replicated, that it can be proven that it was done appropriately, et cetera, et cetera. So there's more checks and balances. In the tech world, there's not so many of those. That doesn't really exist. So it's a good faith thing. Now, like I said, with the scale of the data, that is one problem in and of itself. But that doesn't have to be problematic. The problematic thing, I believe, is that there are no checks and balances, and there's no way to verify that they are doing what they promised. And even if you read into, the, like, the term services, the privacy policies, et cetera, to try to figure out what they are doing, they're so elusive that you probably can't even figure out exactly what's going on. So, again, just no checks and balances.
0: And whose responsibility do you think it is to to have those checks and balances in place? Like, what, what, is a che- what does a balance look like to this check?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, my my personal belief is that it, it should be, right, theoretically, it should be the responsibility of the company to hold themselves to a certain standard. Mm-hmm. That doesn't normally happen. Yeah. If you look at the history of business, it just doesn't happen. Um, I do believe that we need some kind of, uh, whether that comes from the government or that comes from some informal, independent regulatory body, we need something that can kind of set the standard and and hold these companies in check. We need people that know enough about what's going on to question the things that are going on and to bring it to the public in an accessible way, a conversational way, Uh, which is pretty much what I'm trying to do with Beacon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beacon stands for the Better Ethics and Consumer (laughs) Outcomes Network. Uh, We are not selling ethics by any means, but we are very capable of identifying those problems. And so we work proactively to identify them and then translate them into better consumer outcomes we work with companies to make it so that it's not a zero-sum game so it's not just company versus public it becomes a relationship we get back to the old days of customer service right where we are actually thought
0: of and the services work for us not just to get money out of us so beacon is the um (laughs) the company you founded and Mm -hmm. you are the chief visionary officer correct yes Yeah, yeah um so you are working as a balance, as checks and balances for companies, right? Like, you're, Is it a consulting service or how, how is it structured?
1: Yeah, so we are working as a consulting service now, but we're also building out products of our own. So essentially what we do is we, we're seeing these common problems and then we create a product out of the most common problems we see, template those, and then sell it back into companies as a white label solution. Why? Because as a company – so, for example, the first thing we're attacking is privacy policies and end-user legal agreements, terms of services, all those things. Okay. We believe that it's one of the fundamental problems of the Internet because that determines how your data is allowed
0: to be used. It determines what you're giving away, where it can go, et cetera. Okay. And, and how, are your, how is your product improving them? So uh, it's, it's definitely
1: much easier to see it than it is for me to verbalize it, but I'll I'll try real fast, right? So right now, most of those agreements, they're written at at least a 12th grade reading level, at least a like a you have to go to college to be able to understand them. Okay, yeah. Minimum, okay? Um, They're also on average, you know, 20 to 30 minutes in length. You know, that might be 20, 30, 40 pages of legalese. Uh, They're written in a way to protect the company, They're made so that even if you wanted to go read it, you probably couldn't. Even with a college degree, it would probably be very difficult for you to understand. Now, let's take a step back and let's think of the fact that these are global products, right? These are not just you and me. These are not just between educated people. These are going to the general public around the world. Okay, in the United States, about a third of us, maybe less, have even gone to college and graduated. Okay, so there's one. Then you look at the general public 42% 42% of the general public reads at a basic or below basic reading level. That's about eighth grade and below. So you're talking about agreements that are written in a way that even if people wanted to read them, they couldn't comprehend it. So what we're doing is we've done a, a study of these, which is the most boring thing <laughs> I could have ever chosen to do with my life. <laughs> But I went out and I've read tons and tons of privacy policies. I found out, you know, what is the most common information that is in these things? What do consumers absolutely need to know? How do we create an experience that makes these documents accessible to the larger audience, educational, so that it's an opportunity for them to learn about data uh, literacy, like become more data literate instead of having to like go to some class in the evening or something like that. Mm -hmm. and and empowering to them. How do we make it so that people, we know, we know that we are never going to get everyone to read an agreement. We know that. Mm -hmm. But right now there's maybe 1%, probably 1% of 1% that even reads an agreement at this point in history. So how do we get that to be 5% or how do we get that to be 10%? And then can we move the needle forward from there? We're talking about fundamentals, foundational work in this industry, right? The, this is not like, oh, my God, the blue sky idea that I would like to release long term. But right now, the way that we're operating, it's all bootstrapped. I funded the whole thing myself. Uh, and we're, we're thinking about taking some capital this fall because we just signed some big contracts recently. Okay. And um, now we can actually have a fair valuation when we go in. But mostly we've bootstrapped it to avoid the pressures that comes with getting investment capital. We wanted to make this something that wasn't quarterly revenue, that wasn't so focused on getting money out of the system as quick as possible and just draining it, because we believe that's one of the fundamental issues of Silicon Valley. You have these people who go get a million dollars invested, and they think they need to return 10x in two years. That's simply irresponsible. You can go do it. You can go do it. For sure. It can happen. But to think that you're going to do it in a manner
0: that is responsible, I don't believe that's possible. So, um, this first product you're creating makes it easier to read a, read a privacy agreement, yeah, right? What other, what other issues will you do, do you hope to solve with this company?
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so a couple of things we've considered. How do we enable consumers to report problems on the internet? For example, we don't have a police force for the internet.
0: What, what do you do if you have a problem on the internet? You tell me. It depends what the problem is. If it's like a, if it's an issue – some matters you could take to your, your local police department. A few, yes. yes. A few. A, a handful. But the
1: few handful of people that realize you can do that is one issue, right? Yeah, okay. Okay. There's a very small amount of people that would even think, oh, this thing happened on the internet. I'm going to go to the police. So there are a few issues the police can deal with. But then you're dealing with international jurisdictions sometimes. For okay. example, like um, if someone is has a problem on TikTok, okay – a lot of people are on TikTok nowadays. A lot of people's kids are on TikTok nowadays. Mm-hmm. If there's some kind of like sexual soliciting or some kind of problems going on on this platform, for example, between maybe an older adult and some child, do you know how you would address that? Because you could go talk to the police, and but I, their data is stored in China because they're a Chinese-based company. So that means if the police in Lincoln, Nebraska want to do anything about the issue, they have to get in contact with the international authorities in China. To get access to that data to prove anything that process could take months or years if china even decides to cooperate so there are some fundamental flaws that don't allow us to operate in international jurisdictions okay so there's one you could tweet about it you could try to make a lot of noise on your twitter and your social media and all this stuff yes good luck you yeah. better be an influencer you better have some impact in the world
0: and it depends what the what the issue is like some some mm-hmm. issues would not go viral. Like, there, it's, it's only a small right. fraction of issues that could that, right. that, would, that right. would be solved by that,
1: mm-hmm. right? Um, or you could try emailing the company.
0: Yeah,
1: that always results in almost no response. I, yeah, you know, you have, have you ever considered this? When you have a problem with Google, where do they send you?
0: Uh, to their
1: customer service, the help center, which is a gigantic, gigantic page full of. FAQs there is no place that you as an individual user can go call Google okay do you know who can call Google ad vendors because ad vendors are their customers we are not Mm. their customers just something to think about yeah okay so something we've created is called Canary. It's a little browser plugin. Now, this is by no means going to change the world, but we're just testing things out to see how we can create minimum viable products to get things out the door and start to make impact. This is a browser extension that you can currently add to any Chromium-based system. And when you see a problem on the Internet, you click our browser extension. It will take a screenshot of what you're looking at. It will grab your uh, OS version, your browser version and the URL so we know exactly what kind of system it happened on and where it happened. We're not grabbing anything identifying there.
0: All that information if you do quality assurance for a website that is what the um, that's what the QA person grabs Like yes. all, all, all that information is very very standard in the industry. Absolutely
1: Yes. and that's very true. The problem is the QA person can go find those bugs and the only thing the company does anything about is what I said earlier only what moves revenue forward. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is extract some of these things and allow consumers to report it to an independent body that can then create reports, which is which is what we're trying to do. Yeah. Create reports that say, these are the problems that have been reported across the Internet. Here's how often they're happening. Here's where they're happening. Here's what consumers think about them. And then we have data that when, for example, Beacon goes and talks to a company, we can go and audit their system and actually identify the problems and have data backing up to say
0: this is the ROI on your decisions. Do you see? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, you earlier touched on a point that I, I want your perspective on of the um of the police having to talk to China and um I that that same underlying issue is um happens when our politicians interview people Mm -hmm. like mark zuckerberg on the on this topic that they don't know enough about the the issue to even comprehend how to solve the problem does does that frustrate you as as a (sighs) leader in data protection and internet rights
1: um i I try not to let it frustrate me Uh, i think that so i had a friend who who does community activation as well and and she has this model that she calls opting in, which is, I find is super ironic. Opt meaning O, meaning openness, P being patience, and T being trust. Okay, You have to be open to the fact that when you're helping create an industry or, or thought leadership in a piece, not everyone's going to understand what you're saying. In fact, most people won't. And you have to be patient enough to talk to them and continue to work what will probably take years in order to help educate and move things forward. And you have to have trust that over time, that's all going to work because you might spend 10 years of your life doing nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So do I get frustrated with it? I have my moments, but I really try to remain calm because if I got super frustrated all the time, I would go insane. Actually, what I try to spend my time doing instead is writing more, um, networking more, trying to reach those people and talk to them. For example, just... Just yesterday, I had a call with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to talk about some issues and make a longer conversation. Um, next week, I'm going to speak at the World Economic Forum to discuss privacy and consent and how we redesign or re-engage consumers in this. Um, and, and I do have a lot of other ideas as well. But the other thing is, when, you, when you're when you in these kind of rooms, you have to be very specifically focused because these are people who have a lot to do, right? Right. I might feel like this is an issue that needs to get taken care of now, but they might have a mom who comes and says, you know, um, something with their child's school is the issue they need to take care of now. And where does that person go and find the balance of what is right to pursue? Mm-hmm. Again, openness, patience, trust. It's just a lot of work over time that hopefully it works, um, but I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't have faith.
0: And what, what gives you that faith? Is, is there anything, yeah, what gives you the faith that this is going to get better? Yeah. And, well, okay, so, yeah, on on yeah. the flip side, how does it get worse? What, what's the worst? What's, the, what's doomsday? He wants to have Yeah. What, Don't they all?
1: Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, of course, it can go bad. Of course. Yeah. Um, we've had other times like this, though, right? Like the nuclear bomb, when that was being created, we thought the Nazis were going to get a nuclear bomb built okay. first. Okay? Um, we created what was called the Manhattan Project back in the day which was bringing a bunch of very intelligent people together to figure out how we don't lose. Okay, <laughs> Right now with automation with AI with all these systems uh, cybersecurity all this whatnot we are in the modern arms race that nobody really knows is going on. And Yes, it could become incredibly problematic. You could have drones with facial recognition that go and attack humans. That's totally potential. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we'd have to have a couple decades of really, really nasty uh, mindlessness within our regulators in order for us to reach that point. Uh, It's definitely being discussed. Don't get me wrong. I've been in these conversations, Mm -hmm. and these, these tools already do exist. It's already out there, but uh, just like we've avoided mass destruction from nuclear warfare, I believe that we will avoid mass destruction from some automated system
0: or robots or whatever you want to do. Do you think a uh, foreign entity influencing an election is a very bad thing? Like, like to me, that that's a marker down this road.
1: Yeah. Oh, do, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, I, I totally think that's an issue. I totally believe that that happened. Um, now, I'm not one of those people who believes that the ads were the things that flipped the election. I'm not one of those people who is going to get into conspiracy about some of the things because I actually have heard a lot of this. I mean, one of our board members actually is Brittany Kaiser, who was one of the leakers from Cambridge Analytica. So I've heard a lot of different things that like people who aren't near that world believe. Um, but actually, I believe what's happening is just communication warfare right Um, a lot of these foreign nations that want to leverage this let's call Russia one of them China is probably one of them as well you also had uh, also just to note you also had a lot of people from foreign countries not Russia or China that were participating in pushing out this propaganda because they could just make money off of it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even like they cared about who won the election. They just figured out the system is broken. I can make money off it. I'm not an American citizen. Who cares, (laughs) you know? Um, So that's a problem in and of itself. But, for example, the Russians were quoted on having spent $150,000 on election campaign ads. Yeah.
0: That's That's not that much money. That's nothing
1: (laughs) relative, right? It comes from... Uh, it actually – it comes a lot more from content in itself and the way that content is distributed through these algorithms. The algorithms are based on engagement, clicks, whatever, swipes, mm-hmm. whatever. Okay. So when you have something that's based on engagement, uh, shares, comments, whatever it is um, – this is what it gets tricky. Okay, if the internet were a highway that we're driving down every day,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: on the side of that highway, there was a car accident that everyone started looking at, which we in Nebraska know happens all the time, right?
0: Uh, yeah, was I was stuck. stuck. I was coming back from Omaha to Lincoln last and night. got that I, yeah, one? I got oh, the, the, the that. The really bad semi-truck. Gnarly. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? And yeah. I took a video of it. It was a gnarly accident. Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to the analogy.
1: So <laughs> if, if the internet were a highway that everyone's looking at the car accident, The Internet would think we need more car accidents, and that's the problem. Mm -hmm. We are currently living in a state of the world that is a car accident, okay? And the people who understand these systems, especially in the last election, leveraged it to hemorrhage the system, right? Mm -hmm. I don't believe that campaign ads flipped the entire thing. Yes, they had an impact for sure. But Obama won a lot because of his campaign strategy as well. Mm-hmm. That had a lot to do with ads on social media. He was
0: the first campaign to yes. to, to use social ads, yes. pretty much
1: ever. And and I will be. I'll just tell everyone listening. I voted for Clinton. You know, it is yeah. what it is. I just believe that this is here to stick around. We cannot go after a certain company or whoever for helping support a president's ad campaign on a social media platform yeah that is part of the industry there are much bigger issues at hand
0: here so um, I'm sure some of our listeners will know exactly what happened others <laughs> yeah and a lot of people I talk to have no clue because it is very complex with a lot of nuance yeah if you had a 60 second explanation uh-huh. of Cambridge Analytica and the whole Facebook drama that we're still talking today that we're yeah. still trying to regulate today yeah, still trying to figure out yes right? what what would the 60 second too long didn't read version
1: that's a great question. Yeah. Um, well, so the story of it is that Cambridge Analytica, which is a, uh, a data broker, essentially a, an adver- like they helped with the advertising strategy. They did psychoanalysis. So the stuff I was talking about earlier on the show about the largest social study in the history mm-hmm. of the world, Cambridge Analytica got a sliver of that. They leveraged that big social study to then identify and attempt to influence people around the globe, especially in the United States. Well, it was beyond the United States, really. They were in the UK, Brexit. They helped with a bunch of other foreign countries throughout the rest of the world.
0: So it was like a marketing agency, but instead of marketing, they had this data that they could. Well, what is marketing?
1: Does marketing not use that data? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. It's just a matter of they were they were the service that worked with the Trump campaign. They were the service that worked with Brexit. They were the service that worked with a lot of foreign nations. that got a lot of people into
0: office that people didn't like. And um, how are they funded? Uh, I, well, okay, so that's a specific question. What, who were they working on behalf of?
1: Yeah, um, so one of their biggest funders. Oh, Jesus Christ. I should know the name. Steve Bannon. One of their biggest funders was Steve Bannon. Um, they, I mean, they made their money like any other data broker or or advertising like group that they made it through services and through their analyses and selling those services. Um, so they had a lot of funding from sides of the world that maybe people aren't so impressed with, but they ultimately did become a business. And I believe like, I, I don't like the way that things shaped out, but I believe they mostly are not a company because the fact that they helped get people elected that were mm-hmm. not, like, a favor of the public, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, there are hundreds of companies that do the same thing. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of companies that do the same thing.
0: And then wasn't there, then Facebook got in trouble because they didn't have a barrier between Cambridge Analytica and, like, came, like Facebook just, like, Cambridge Analytica and... To all the data, right? Isn't there something like that? Uh, actually, we all let them in. Um, okay. So, like, what what do you mean by that?
1: Okay. So, have you ever taken like a psychology study, like a personality test on Facebook, or like any of those
0: Buzzfeed six things that make you the Game of Thrones character, right? right yeah. Right. Okay. Or even playing like Farmville, doing those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Like
1: those apps all have access to tons and tons of data that you don't even realize you're giving away because because so far nothing bad has happened from it. The thing is, you don't actually know that nothing bad has happened from it. Because a lot of times what happens is those companies aggregate the data, but then they sell it or barter it somewhere else to someone else. So when we go back to that original question, I think we said something like, do you believe like uh, the phone is listening to you Right earlier in the show? Yeah. Okay.
0: It was actually quite, uh, I, something I wanted to get to. Yes, carry yeah. on.
1: So the thing is, it's it might not even be Facebook or Google that is listening. Yes, there are times there are been issues, et cetera, but actually what's probably happening is you've already consented to your microphone constantly being on or used by some other application, some obscure application that you forgot about, at which point that data is then used and sold back in, right? Google you can go google it right now actually you go on, <laughs> go on to their searches Google has purchased MasterCard buying data like there is this is legal it is legal to buy and sell data in the United States as of current point in mm-hmm. history okay um, so actually it's not always these companies that are listening or that are watching a lot of times it is really obscure companies that I believe mostly we consent to but also there are ones
0: that we don't that they're just that's Modern crime, yeah. um, that's how it is. But so going on the phone, listening to you, yeah. do you um, how how do you think that's working? A lot of people think they uh, say the word Coca Cola into their phone, and yeah. then Facebook takes that and then gives an gives a Coca Cola ad because they know they're thinking you're thinking about it in the next two hours. Mm-hmm. Or like do, how how to what extent is your phone listening to you? Is the question? <laughs> on, um, not, not it general. is listening to you. Okay, just point blank. It's listening to you. There's okay. no getting around that.
1: Like almost almost all of us, it's listening to you. Now, to what extent is, is the real question, right? Like are they listening to you specifically? Are they listening to just pieces of what you have to say or are they listening to all of it? What's being analyzed how? Is it being analyzed by machines or is it being analyzed by humans? These are all things that like phew, the public's like, what? That's mm-hmm. not even possible. That can't be happening. It does. It does. And more than likely, you consented to it.
0: Okay, um, and and for example, like if you listen, to, if you're listening to this on Spotify and Apple, yeah. they're they're they know what we're talking about. They're picking up keywords. Um, well, you have Siri running,
1: or you have Google Assistant running, or yes. whatnot, right? Now with my phone, um, I have it turned off, so I can say "Hello, Google," and it doesn't pick anything up. Okay. But there are default settings with uh, with other services where, like, even when your phone's locked, you can say. Hey Siri or hey Alexa or whatever in it and it takes off even when the system's just like kind of on idle, right? Yeah. That means that that thing is listening. <laughs> just it doesn't mean they're using it. It yeah. doesn't mean that it is sitting in their cloud full time and that everything's being recorded. But it also doesn't mean it's not.
0: <laughs> you know. Yes, yeah. Um, do you think currently the social media ads are getting served based on what you're saying?
1: Um I actually believe that that's not really happening. I believe it it can happen. I believe these services probably have access to that data if they want it. But I actually believe what's happening is that the algorithms are getting so good at knowing you or us individually that it's targeting us almost as if it were listening. There are a lot of things you can do. Like for example, um, I just found this out the other day. You know have you ever have you ever been in front of a movie theater, stood in front of a, a sign for a movie and looked at it and then walked away and saw an ad for that movie? Mm-hmm. So people have coincidences like that constantly. So those signs actually, although you don't know it, are embedded with sensors nowadays. And they're matching your GPS in your phone from, say, Facebook, because you've given them access to your location, to these other sensors all around the world that Facebook has connections to. That doesn't necessarily mean that Facebook is listening to you or that they were looking out your camera, but they can know that your phone was geolocated within three feet of this sign and that you paused there for 30 seconds, and so there's a good chance that you may have looked at that sign. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, that's a, that's a nuance. That's something that most people would never even consider, but I believe this is really what's happening. We have sensors all over the world nowadays. They're probably not listening to you all the time. Like I said, yes, it does happen. Yes, you've probably consented to giving access away. But I believe there are so many data points in the world, and these algorithms are so good at this point in history that actually they don't even need to listen to you to know what you're going
0: to say next. Back to an earlier question that kind of opened this whole discussion. How do you think it's getting better? Or, what, yeah, yeah. How, how does it get better, and do you think it's better? <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad we brought that one back. Yeah, I like, yes, yeah. Oh yes. my God, they're yeah. freaking
1: out. Everyone's going to go on yeah.
0: off a cliff. Um, and and I, I, I was planning to go positive, then we went negative. Like, I didn't even get the question out Yeah, all the it's way. okay. <laughs> yeah. I like to, I like
1: to uh, move it positive towards the end of the thing. Yeah, You're yes, not yes. Positive, no. Exactly. Um, so, I, I, I do think it is getting better. I've been doing this for two and a half years. I'll tell you, I started really paranoid. Because these companies are very, very powerful, and I've seen the potentials of what can can be, you know, done to a leaker. Now, I don't consider myself to be a leaker. I haven't said a secret the entire time I've left the company, but I have so many people who want to label me as a leaker because of the way that I speak about things, because I walk that gray line so fine that people can't tell sometimes, <laughs> and um, and so. For me, when I first left, I was super paranoid. I had a hard time like moving forward sometimes on writing the book. I had a hard time moving forward on this whole thing, thinking, you know, I'm sitting in my parents' base. I sold everything I own pretty much.
0: And, and so your first step was to write a book, I broke, which we didn't yeah, touch on. did right?
1: barely touch on. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I, I sold everything I own. I broke my lease in San Francisco. I lived out of my car for two and a half months shipped everything home that i absolutely needed and and i've based out of my parents house now for two and a half years when i'm not on the road six to eight months out of the year okay but but for the beginnings of it it was really hard i was sitting in my parents basement writing this book thinking am i am i the crazy one am i throwing my career my life away like that's real considerations i've had when going through this because who knows Who knows with the state of the market and the power these companies have, what they're going to do to shape the future of information. Okay. Now, why do I think it's going to be good in the future? Because I've been at that point. I've been really low and I've moved forward for the last two and a half years. And I can tell you, I've never felt safer or like communities are more engaged in this stuff than I have felt in my life. I believe a movement's coming and I can feel it because I'm in these conversations every single day talking to people at events like when i'm hosting tonight for example i'm Mm. going to have an interactive town hall where we're sitting down with community leaders and i'm going to just walk them through some of this movie and and ask them questions pointed about these questions to see how they're solving i see all this stuff and i see it at a global scale i've been to four different continents 19 different states and nations over the last year and a half i write for forbes i write for other big publications like I can feel it. Something's coming. Now, the key and the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because a big thing is just to get that bubble to start growing, right? To raise awareness within the community. But we're at a point in the world where now the communities are upset, but yet almost nobody really knows what to do about it. They know they want change. They don't know what to make change. That's where some of my work for the last two and a half years and the people that are in my network really comes into play. Because we've stepped out. We've taken these sacrifices. We said, you know, we're not going to... Some some of my connections have leaked secrets, but there are plenty of others who haven't, and they just said, we're going to help the communities understand this as much as possible. We're going to help regulate it as fairly as possible, right? Because we also don't want regulation that's so strict that it harms our independence as an economic factor in the world, right? Uh, we have to realize that China, Russia, uh, opposing nations do want to take us over in this power. And, And China, for example, is not that far off. So we have to realize that, yes, we want regulation in certain spaces, but also we need to leave some freedom. We need freedom for room to grow and to try things. That's why I think my work has actually clicked in is because a lot of the work we do is like I went, okay, go back to the original story of how to sell business ideas at Google. A lot of our work is based on very reasonable, actionable principles. We, of course, have ideas of how we would like to see this ideal world happen, but we also realize there are time constraints. There is a length of time in history that you just need to start to do something and get something going. So all of our agreements and things that we work on are focused on taking steps forward, even if it's a baby step. Um, and, And so I think that's what's gotten us a lot of traction and what's allowing us to get to these conversations. But I have hope for the future because I see these solutions. I'm starting to talk to people who are making change. I'm starting to talk to a lot of people who are general public and want to make change. And I'm just seeing it happen before my eyes. I'm literally just participating in history. And I think about this every day when I'm walking down the street, when I'm walking to any of these engagements. I just think I'm watching history in front of my eyes. And I think I'm going to look back at this 10 or 20 years and say, I can't believe I was part of that.
0: Well, Joe, thanks for coming on the show with me. Yeah. yeah, your, pers- your perspective is fascinating and yeah. valuable.
1: Yeah,
0: I, uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, man, appreciate it. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Turbine Flats Coworking and Doris Miller from Community Development Resources for supporting the show. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends about us and leave a review. You can also like the Commonwealth on Facebook and LinkedIn and follow Alec and I on Twitter and Instagram. We release episodes every Monday, so stay tuned for next week.